This is not the media. This is hell. Hey audience, producer Alex here. Chuck is out today with inconsolable grief over the death of his brother Matt. He keeps thinking that he's going to be good to do the show, and then reality sets back in like it does. He's having a tough time, poor guy. I don't know what's happening tomorrow, but for today, let's revisit a 2017 interview with writer Cindy Milstein on the revolutionary potential of death and grief. Uh, Silver linings, I guess. Back at it down the road. Enjoy your loved ones while you got them. Memento mori, friends. This is hell. In death, we can find rebellion, even revolution. In death, we can find the new culture anarchists always seek, but rarely find. Death can lead to the change we've all been waiting for. Here to explain, Cindy Milstein is editor of the collection of essays, Rebellious Morning, the Collective Work of Grief. Welcome to This Is Hell, Cindy. Hi. Thanks, Chuck, for having me on the show. Cindy Milstein, again, editor of the collection of essays, Rebellious Morning, The Collective Work of Grief. For more of Cindy's writing, you can find it at cbmilstein.wordpress.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at Cindy Milstein. You quote, right at the beginning of your book, you quote Zapatista Subcomandante Galliano writing in the book, The Crack in the Wall, First Note on the Zapatista Method on the 43 Disappeared Ayotzinapa Students. You, you write that, uh, you quote him writing, your struggle is a crack in the wall of the system. Don't allow Ayotzinapa to close up. Your children breathe through that crack, but so do the thousands of others who have disappeared across the world. So that the crack does not close up, so that the crack can deepen and expand. You will have in us Zapatistas a common struggle, one that transforms pain into rage, rage into rebellion, rebellion into tomorrow. How much can pain, how much can the pain of grief from death, how much can that radicalize us? Will the revolution be caused by grief? Yeah, um, well, first of all, I want to say that, uh, um, it's not. An, it's, this book isn't advocating death and loss and grief as an instrumental way toward revolution. So therefore, we should increase that or seek that out. I want to make that that clear. Um, it's it's more arguing that at this moment, um, one thing that actually touches most of humanity is um, this deep and palpable sense of constant, grinding, brutal, structural losses, um, whether that's from disappearances or death. Um, uh, you touched on in your in, in your show your whole title. This is hell. We're living in a planet where um, our very we're a, even asking the existential question: Will we, as a species, even um, be here <laughs> within ten or fifteen or twenty years or a, a lifetime or so? And that's so that the intensity of what we're anticipatorily grieving is is a monumental right now. Our 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 own like existence to the species, whether we should, do, should we do anything at all if we're not going to be here? Um, and not to mention all sorts of other and profound, profound losses. Like, for instance, this is the greatest displacement of humans in history at this moment on the planet. So more people are somewhere they don't want to be, are ripped from the fabric of their communities and their lives and their homes, which is also another really deep form of loss and also does cause death. <laughs> people die of the heartbreak of that. So, um, so what what I think that quote um, from the Zapatistas is, is, is really getting at is we are actually experiencing profound forms of loss and mass death and um, grief and mourning. But especially in this place called the United States, we're, we're told to, to either 
privatize that, um, individualize it, or mostly try to pretend it's not happening, (laughs) shove it away, um, be happy, be young, go on, pretend no one ever gets hurt or dies. And so what this book is arguing is when we when we actually open up that space and allow ourselves to fully feel the, the myriad of human emotions that come with loss, because loss is actually something as humans, we're, we're born into a world already knowing we will die. So this book is arguing, you know, loss and grief and pain aren't um, avoidable. And, and they're, in fact, part of the, the beauty of the human condition in a way. But what this book is exploring is the profound amounts of losses that would not have to happen, the profound amount of death that could be avoided um, if we if we were able to contest the structural losses that cause deaths that shouldn't have to happen, murder by police or, you know, disappearances or disposability of humans because of uh, robotics or all sorts of other things. So, um, so how would we, how does us opening ourselves up to the full range of who we are as humans actually contest those forms of loss? And, and I would argue in this, and as the 36 other contributions in this book touch on in very bittersweet and beautiful ways through stories is that we do that when we toss aside the fiction that any form that loss is ever an individual phenomena. Um, if right now I got a second phone call while we were talking, telling me someone that I totally love had just died, um, I you would hear my voice change. I would probably maybe start crying or, you know, my sh- sound shaky or all sorts of other things. And it would, it would impact you instantly too, as a listeners. And so there's a way in which, and then of course your social circle, who else knows this person, who else loves them. So every form of losses is a collective loss. And so when we actually open ourselves up to that, acknowledge that, reach out to those around us who are sharing that loss and that grief and figure out ways to collectively grapple with the full range of emotion in ways that begin to, as an anarchist, I, I'm all about how do we prefigure the things we want in the here and now and not wait to, for some magical moment? How do we begin to act out the world and the values, the ethics, the practices in the here and now? So if we collectively grieve in ways that are about creating deep, caring, empathetic communities of dignity, we're, we're challenging those structures that tell us we're not dignified, we're not worthy, we're not, you know, we're not inherently each worthwhile. <laughs> um, and when we do that, we also begin in a non-instrumental way, I think, when we grieve together and see that as part of our struggle for a better world, the two seem to go hand in hand. So the Oyed Sanapa example, I someone writes a piece about it within the collection, but I personally heard some of the families on a tour speak, and I was really struck by one of the parents. They said they had all come from very poor villages and they were so happy to have their children go to the school where they could maybe become teachers and maybe have a better life. And most of their children were sending little bits of, you know, support back to their families. And when their, their children were disappeared, they all went to the school and didn't necessarily know each other. And there in the school, they end up having to sort of stay there because they couldn't both, they needed the, the material support, but then they realized they needed the, the emotional support and through them, grieving together and supporting each other emotionally and mentally <laughs> and materially, they also decided to struggle together. And I think the beauty of the Oetsanapa 23 points is one beautiful example, because the way they chose to do that was profoundly personalized the loss they were each experiencing by each of them showing a picture of the, the child of theirs that was disappeared. And 
but yet the photos almost always are, are shown together. So it's not my loss. It's the 43 and the end in the piece in the, the anthology that talks about this. Um, it's a, it's a person who's, who's toured with some of them. Um, they said many people through those photos said that could have been my child. That could have been man, my grandchild. And so there are 43 photos together with people that were also creating a caring space of grief together, also created this larger caring community of people who were able to experience and and talk about and grapple with their own forms of pain and loss at the same time and build a movement. Um, again, not instrumentally, not wanting people to die or disappear, but but not telling people. I think in the United States, often if something you experience a profound loss like a death, um, I, I had three really close people die to me in the past four years. And it's really interesting. People tell you to well, go away and come back when you're done or or go to a self-care, you know, or find your therapist. And and for me, the times I felt like my I personally was able, and this is another thing that brought me to this book, was able to actually understand my losses and understand my grief when I was with others and we were having basically circles of care where we were all mutualistically caring for and listening to and hearing and experiencing all the, again, the range of emotions from laughter to rage to tears to, to disbelief with groups of people. Um, and the profound difference between collectively and honestly and openly sharing. And that's ultimately who we are as human beings. <laughs> and uh, it's sad to me that um, oftentimes the times you people show the most who they really are is when they're suddenly jolted by a death of someone they love. And suddenly they're like, wow, I'm mortal. There's only so much time left. I, I should do what I want to do and be who I want to be. And there's this window, a crack, <laughs> where they open up and really become who they could and want to be in, in, in the whole, again, range of emotions. Cause as humans, I think partially we're being shut down and we want to open up to all that we're feeling. And then it's, it's really interesting to watch people a few weeks later, they'll clamp back up and they'll be like, Oh, I got to get back to work. I got to get back to life as if somehow that isn't part of their life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I, you know, so again, this book, it, it's a, it's a way of how do we do that every day, weaving that fabric in um, of both um, what we're losing and, um, I guess the last point I want to make, and then I'll let you let you get a word in, is um, is the only reason we would want to grieve losses is because we love something and we miss something. And so, loss, as horrific as it is, it shows us that we have the capacity to love, <laughs> and and love is part of why we struggle for a better world. I would hope, and and so there's moments where we, you know, if if we lose something, we should we should grieve, we should mourn, we should take the time and the space and do that with other people because it's an acknowledgement of how much we care. So uh, why do we not offer that cooperative, compassionate dignity, that capacity of life, of love? Why do we not offer that in life? But then as we get towards the end, we offer it in death. At one point you talk about your uh, father going into hospice and how you saw this amazing cooperative community uh, people who are a very caring community working together. And so I, I couldn't help but think this entire time I'm on this planet, I'm hoping for this more caring, cooperative community of people to show compassion towards each, each other, to show dignity towards each other. You never get it. And then all of a sudden you're deathly ill, your illness is terminal, and suddenly you get to experience it at the end of your life. Why do yep. we not offer that same kind of dignity of life during life instead of only at death? Yeah, well, especially I'll just again speak from 
sort of the context of the, you know, I live in the United States, and so I'll speak from, from that because I don't want to universalize this because in many right, different right. places and cultures, there are still more communal, much more face, people face the fact that they're mortal and they face death in, in much more profound communal ways than, than I think is happening. So in, in you know, I think one one enormous reason here in the United, well, several, is the origin stories of this of this place called the United States is, you know, the rugged individual that forges ahead on their own and discovers, you know, and and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And, and that, that story, whether we think we want to believe it or not, it's so profoundly woven into this, like, his, you know, even people that don't want to believe it, there's something about how that's pounded into you, sort of that whole mythology. And so the, I'm, I've been really struck whenever I've gone outside of the United States is often people will speak through the a collect the the we first and then the I. <laughs> and here it's always like the I, almost always the I first and then the we. And so that's a subtle thing. But I think partially this sort of you need to do everything on your own, including deal with losses. So so much, you know, trying to form community, trying to organize politically. I think those are all so much harder here because people do often think that, well, I'm not getting what I want, so I need to leave. Or, you know, So that's one huge barrier, I think, to grieve or to organizing. But I think another in terms of how we understand um, why we've been so distanced from, I'll just speak about death, um, because this book touches on all sorts of other losses, not just um, death. But um, um, in terms of death, there capitalism is also so profoundly mature and deep here. And so, you know, the values of it tell us that everything is a commodity. Everything is instrumental. Everything can be exchanged for something else. Um, so, you know, if someone, if someone, you know, you often hear someone, if they have a pet and it dies, you'll often hear someone going, oh, well, you can get another cat, you know, <laughs> or, or even people say that when people have children that die, they'll say, oh, well, you, I'm sure you can still have children. And, and, uh, and there's this way in which it's sort of this kind of disposability and you can get something else. And it's, and, and the way capitalism has structured the, the care and the grief industry removes us from, from care, from life. So we, you know, the care and the medical industry are two of the still highly profitable, enormous growth industries. So, you know, don't take care of your own children. Don't take care of your own body. Don't take, you know, hire someone else, remove remove your own agency from care. And so for me, a huge, a huge underlying argument of this book, too, is that we need to decommodify care, especially. I don't want a caring economy. I want a care that we gift to each other that we want to do because we're human. And so it's deeply disturbing that so much of the entirety of our life is we literally farm out or pay out other people to take care of things. Um, even the turn, I don't know when it was, you know, maybe in the past couple decades where people are paid to stand at the front of the sto a store and say hello to you when you walk in. <laughs> and, you know, it's a very interesting thing where we, we need that kind of sociality because we don't get it in other parts of our lives because capitalism and other forces have removed it from us. So in terms of the death, then there's a death industry and a care industry that removes us. So to come back to the hospice, I feel very, um, both my parents got sick on the same day and both were clearly heading in a terminal direction. And so I came back to take care of them. And um, it was so interesting being in a, a medical hospital. You know, I instantly, both my parents had, uh, you know, do not, they had living wills that I was the, technically the legal person could make decisions about them. But it was so interesting. Oh, oh, it was around hundreds of different doctors over the course of the 
13 months that my both my parents ended up dying during a 13 month period and and they would all none of them would want to talk about death none of them would want to admit that they were my parents were dying they didn't want to even look at them as human beings they would kind of come in and rush out and not make eye contact with them much less me and I became very comfortable about talking to them about death and they you could tell how disturbed they were they'd pull me out in the hall and get really anxious and and then at one point um Right at the beginning, actually, when my dad was first sick, a nurse a nurse pulled me away and she goes, you know, your dad, this is, is not going in a good direction. You know, he's dying. Why don't you do this in a, a beautiful way called hospice? And it what really saddened me is that, like you said, if I hadn't stumbled upon hospice, and I know more and more people are kind of finding it, but all hospice is really doing is asking us to go back to other time periods when people had more intimate connections, familial, friendship, community connections to death and dying. and where you make, you allow people to have a, as good a life as they can. And when they can't, you allow them to have as good as death as they can. And so um, I'll give you an example. When my mom, it was clear, um, my, I'd already been with my dad while he was dying. And that um, my mom was in the hospital. I could tell she was about to die because I could look at her face. And I kept at, saying to the doctors, look at her face. You can tell she's dying because I've just watched someone die. And and they would go, oh, no, you know, her, her chest sounds okay. And I go, but no, look at her. <laughs> and so... Finally, I, after a week, they were, she was just, they weren't, they weren't, you know, combing her hair. They weren't bathing her. They weren't looking at her. And then I said, look, I'm taking her. I asked her, she was conscious and she wanted to go home too. So I was like, we're going home. We're going to, you know, she's going to die with dignity and, and hospice. And suddenly the minute I said that within minutes, someone came in and started combing her hair. They changed her hospital gown. They started calling her by her name. And I'm, it, it so struck me. Why, again, like you said, why do we wait? So I know this sounds kind of quirky. And I, I'm not, again, advocating that we try to, you know, look toward our death. But what hospice is as a concept versus a place, because you can, you could, of course, commodify hospice and make it awful too. But as a concept, what hospice asks us to do constantly with a group of people around loss, including the person who is dying, is to constantly think about how we can accentuate the quality of life at every moment for all of us who are experiencing the heading toward loss, and at the same time, how we can lessen pains that don't have to be there, knowing that there still will be pain that will have to be there because someone's dying. So they don't try to stop your grief. We create a care community to accentuate the quality of grief, but it lessens the quality of pain for the person that's dying, let's say bodily pains, or um, you know, making them feel like they're not able to be respected. So it, it really struck me with hospice. I put three different people who I love. I went through hospice and watched all three of them die and I was with them and it was utterly intimate and beautiful that someone allows you to be there with them when they're passing on. And in each case, they they asked them what they wanted and I did and, and they they articulated what they wanted up until the end. And in terms of um, my mom, you know, it was like, I want, I want my lipstick on or I want, you know, I want to sit in my favorite chair or, and why not let someone do that? <laughs> you know, why make them die this horrific death? So, I've been really struck by why don't we apply those values? And as an anarchist, that really speaks to me because for me, my values as an anarchist are our, our project should be collectively to always try to make the world a, a freer, more mutualistic, dignified, collective um, quality of life place for each other at the same time that we try to remove those forces that, that deny those things to us. We remove hierarchies in order to create a non-hierarchical, egalitarian, caring world. And so, yeah, so it's it's. I think because of structures like capitalism that can sell us, you know, expensive health care and keep a body in a house. Like my dad was on life support and it was costing, I think he was um, on um, 
uh, he had health insurance, and then just before he died, he was moving toward Medicaid. But the place they warehoused him in because he was on life support, um, and for a variety of reasons, I should have put him in hospice earlier, but I didn't. Um, but uh, um, at one point, the administrator, who never, ever, she was down the hall from my dad, never, ever walked down, didn't know his name, didn't know any of the other 100 people there that were like literally dead bodies just on life life. I'm going to put quote marks around that life support because they all looked like it was a warehouse of dead bodies almost being kept alive by machines. And my dad was the most highly functioning. He could spell out words with a finger on a little letter card so he could communicate, but could not do any of his own bodily functions. And and so at one point, the administrator admitted that she, each body was $36,000 in reimbursements. And she, when they got on Medicaid, it was still like 20000 or something. And so for her, they were just tens of thousands of dollars on a thing called a bed and no one came to visit any of them. And it's in Michigan. There's only two or three places you can put people when they're on this type of life support. So it's nowhere near where anyone lives. And, you know, and so I, it was so disturbing to me as a radical. So for me, I walked in there and I'm like, what a political question. This is not life. This is basically a space to keep bodies semi alive. So you can generate money to keep a staff going in a, a large corporation that this is what they do. And versus the minute, again, I put my dad into hospice, he went to this beautiful place. It was a residential hospice and he could see birds and flowers and people treated him lovely. And he had this absurdly nice, he, he was only conscious sort of for, a, for about 24 hours. And then he slowly drifted toward death for the next seven days. And we stayed in the room with him the whole time for the whole week. And it was this most beautiful experience because at every moment people were coming in and talking to him and treating him nice and friends were visiting and family even when he seemed like he was just asleep and drifting toward death um i really i mean they say the hearing is the last to go so hospice people kept saying talking to him and it did he did have this look of almost the most calm and happy he'd ever been in his whole life which is an odd thing to say and it 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 so broke my heart that again this had to be he had had to experience nine months of hell (laughs) in a basically being kept alive on machines to then be taken off and have this incredible week at this beautiful place that looked like a vacation retreat center. And people were so good to each other and good to us. <laughs> and I was good to them. There was one of the, one of the aides there. She'd had her parent happen to die like two days before um, um, my dad, a couple days before my dad died. And she was there and she was trying to keep it together to, to counsel me. And then, and then I said, Oh, you look like you're having a hard time. And then for an hour, she just told me how upset she was. And, I was, again, really struck by hospice where it breaks down these barriers. And I know it's a small example, but it's in, in capitalism, we're told there's a professional who's going to keep this like poker face and just help you. And you have to, you know, you're the receiver, they're the giver, there's this boundary. And in hospice, it's like, no, we're just human beings who are experiencing the serendipity of all of us having losses. So one day I helped her and the next day she came in and I was having a hard time and she seemed a little better. So she was helping me. But it was interesting for both of us because we were both experiencing the exact same thing, a loss of a parent, which, as many people will tell you, is feels like a club because it, you don't quite understand what it feels like until it happens to you, like any form of loss. So so there's this way in which we became humanized through this experience of, of hospice. But why wait till the end? <laughs> so um, I think we should stop thinking about this as let's wait till you have six months left to do this and think about what would it look like every moment as human beings and whatever we understand as politicized human beings, what does it look like at every moment to think about all those around us and how we could all together accentuate the quality of life and lessen 
all those forms of loss that don't have to happen, um, you know, whether it's murder by police or disasters caused by climate change or the range of horrible losses that we're facing at this moment as human beings. And you talk about putting on your anarchist glasses, and when you do, you can see how capitalism has played a role in the loss of many people's lives. In one way that you see it is in gentrification, living in San Francisco. So for those people out there who don't understand how capitalism can kill, how does gentrification kill in San Francisco? Yeah, I unfortunately don't live there anymore because of, of, I'm a product of the eviction epidemic, but I did. And um, I did a lot of um, solidarity, not charity, eviction defense. And what that is, is a group of people just get together who are all facing eviction or have been evicted or may be evicted. And we would meet and we would just talk about, okay, who's being evicted, who needs some support. And then we were just with each other, do whatever that person felt comfortable. So that might be a demonstration in front of their landlord's office, or it might be something theatrical, or it might be if, you know, they're coming to try to throw someone out, we'll stand there and try not to let them come in to throw them out. So there are a whole range of things people do together. And, uh, uh, one particular thing I, I loved about that um, was that we would do a usually go around each time and just ask how people were. And when someone was about to be evicted, you could just see how intense they'd be like, well, you know, I just got my eviction notice. I, I, I can't breathe. I'm, I'm having trouble sleeping. I, you know, and they would start telling you because you almost can't not because you're so upset. And so we became this, in a sense, almost a grief group by default because we would care for and listen to each other's stories. And then we would say, okay, what do you want us to do? And then we would all help each other. And so there was this deep way people became really connected to each other and cared about each other. Um, but through that group, a lot of people in San Francisco who, who are, have been, there's many categories of people who, are, who have been highly targeted. But one in particular are people who have lived in their home for 50, 60, 70, 80 years because they have rents that are like maybe 400 a month because there's rent control. And the only way you can kick that apartment into a apartments in San Francisco, one bedroom or like four to $5,000. So if someone's 90 years old and they're in an apartment, they're paying 400 a month and you own that building and you can rip it down and build luxury condos. and Each one can go for 5,000. You want to get that person out by any means necessary. So the way capitalism works in San Francisco, because it's the most expensive city to rent in and um, is that um, landlords would do everything from literally, um, they would stalk you, they would send thugs to your house, they would um, let the entire house deteriorate, they would, there were many arsons of buildings, um, there were several times at least where it was so clear the police murdered people as forms of enticement to self-evict, which happened. Um, and so there were, it was really, in, it's an intense war zone. I mean, when, when the price of a one single small room goes from 400 and someone can make 5,000 off of it. It's, it's, it's really sad how people that are making mega billions of dollars, what they will do to get someone out. So what happened many times in San Francisco, which was just heartbreaking is when someone had lived in their home for that long, there was many instances of a, just, I think about a nine months ago or so, there was a woman who was 99 who'd lived in the home for most of her life. And fought for about a year not to be evicted. And then she was, and, um, within a week she died. <laughs> and I mean, there is, if you have ever faced other certain losses are particularly profound. So the loss of a home isn't just a physical space. It's, 
you know, the, the grocery you're used to going to or the people you say hi to or your mail carrier that you've gotten to know and the fabric of your friends around you and where you go to the doctor and, and every, it's basically the entire fabric of how you understand yourself in your life. And so when you've lived somewhere that long and everything that has meant anything to you is ripped away from you, it, it does not only cause emotional things, but emotional, our minds and bodies are connected. So, um, the number of people who died within a week or a month of being evicted who were in their 80s and 90s was pretty remarkable. It was almost uncannily correlated. Um, so I think especially in San Francisco, people would fight extra hard to keep keep people in their homes that had been there for most of their lives precisely because they knew it was life or death. Um, another example is during the AIDS crisis in, in the Bay Area, um, there are many people that try to evict people because of the um, homophobia and fear of AIDS. And so many um, gay people, gay men especially, were evicted from homes during the AIDS crisis. And then fast forward to this current moment, um, and those that hung on um, in San Francisco that were gay there's a, and have AIDS, um, living with AIDS, um, there was another way where some people that had survived that first wave of both AIDS and eviction had, were evicted the second time. So there was this um, really profound banner, a giant banner in demonstrations, but it really struck me in San Francisco that you know, during the AIDS crisis, the slogan was silence equals death and a big banner that was made for a lot of queers that were protesting evictions was um, eviction equals death. And it really was true because, again, there was a, a person who had had um, survived that first bout and and then was evicted um, in the second wave. And they, they also um, died right after being evicted and they had HIV because of because of the, the stress and um the brutality of capitalism. So, I mean, capitalism is structured. Um, there's a, a beautiful thinker, Sylvia Federici, um, and uh, she writes a lot about care and the commons and what it would look like not to live under capitalism, but to look live under something where we think of the world as something in common to share, use, and enjoy and decide about together. And um, I, I heard her give a talk once, and this really sums it up for me. Capitalism, if you want to think about it as a structure, overall system, is set up to set up as a death machine. It destroys whether that's the ecology, whether that's our bodies, our, our, our communities, it's set up for death, the production of death. Even if that takes a while, it's, that's what it's set, set up for. It rips things apart, it destroys, it takes away. Um, and that those of us that are struggling for a better world of care and dignity and mutualism and love are, are all about striving for the creation, the generation and the production of life. Um, life for each other, life for the planet, life for things that are not human and humans too. And I, that, I really like that way of thinking, like, and I hope this book touches on the only way to do that is when we do that with other human beings. Um, we come into this world as humans burst. You can't take a, a newly birth, a newly birthed human has to be caught with hands and held and has to be taken care of. You can't just set them down because they won't live that long without nourishment and interdependence and we need to continue that care and that nurturance and independence for the interdependence for the whole of our lives our, our, we are social creatures we depend on each other's social relationships and so again this book is arguing the production and generation of life and life also is going to involve loss and grief is about us accentuating our social relationships around care including those moments and this moment in human history I think more than you know it's one of those kind of crucial turning point moments. I really love the title of your show. This is we're living in, we are living in a world that feels like it's hell. And most people, when you ask them how they are each day, they almost want to just say, well, it feels like hell. And, um, 
And I think it would be healthier if we did just admit that and then turn to each other and say, well, if it does, how can we make it feel a little a little not like that? How can we bear our losses better and give give our lives meaning with each other by struggling to lessen those losses together and, and, and produce life while we're doing that so that up to the moment of when we, you know, even if we only have 10 years left on this planet, how can we make every minute count, every minute have life for all of us so that we can live well and die well, which is, again, the argument of this book. Um, and hopefully lessen the losses so we don't have to have as many people um, dying from the brutalism of evictions or um, police murders or all the sundry other things that are um, destroying us right now. Well, Cindy, I find find the book fascinating, and I'm thinking about doing a a series of interviews featuring essays from your book and authors from your book because this really— is a fascinating topic that nobody has really touched on before. I mean, we've talked about death in the past, but not grief in the way that you discuss it in your book. We've been speaking with Cindy Milstein. She is editor of the collection of essays, Rebellious Morning, the Collective Work of Grief. You can find more of Cindy's work by going to cbmilstein.wordpress.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Cindy Milstein. One last question for you, Cindy. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You were seeking a new culture as an anarchist. You found a new culture in hospice. What explains why you can create a new culture in hospice, but there weren't quite able to in anarchy, unless I am depicting it in an accurate way? Yeah, I think I think at moments I I have in both um, hospice. I think there's so much more intentional. Like people are like, this is what we're here to do. <laughs> and the the if you're if you speak to anyone who does hospice, I feel like I've gotten to be I'm a death doula through doing that. And I, I I use this language now too. You feel like this is such an honor to to have someone allow me into this space to be there as they journey on this one time you will ever die to let someone let you be there. So everyone talks about it being an honor to be there in a caring community. And as an anarchist, um, I think what, what's, you know, you're trying to live this, this, this life that's at cross purposes with everything in society. You know, if you, I, I have a critique of hierarchy, so it's, it's really hard to live in a world where everything around you to put on those anarchist glasses uh, is everything around you is, you know, patriarchy, heteronormativity, capitalism, statism, um, you know, white supremacy. It's like everywhere you look, there's, it's, it's at odds with the world you could imagine. But what's beautiful about it is that anarchists try hard and to create these magical moments where, like in hospice, that happens. You come together and you create this moment for a week or two weeks or five, four months while someone's dying, and then that community, too, dissipates. <laughs> and so I think that's what anarchists do is they come together and they create these magical moments, whether that's, you know— um, times during occupying squares and creating our own libraries and healthcare systems or, um, you know, Standing Rock was another moment and where people, it wasn't just anarchists, but people come together and they self-organize and they, they self-manage and they care for each other. Or I've been part of many magical spaces like that. Um, I was in Montreal during the student strike, which I write a lot about on my blog, if you want to go back and read. And for six months, people took over that city in the sense that everybody just decided to collectively make the city their own and made art together and poetry together and took the streets each night. There was this profound sense of collective care and love, revolutionary love and and beauty. And and then they dissipate. And so I guess 
underline this whole book. All the stories are bittersweet. None of them have happy or closure endings. They have bittersweet endings because we create these spaces of care. And then it's really difficult and messy to try to keep them together in a world that tells you this is not going to be allowed, that crushes it with police or with the way we're socialized or all the other things that, you know, we're just as broken by this structure, which is why I want to get rid of it. Um, so all these forces are telling us we're wrong. And so for me, the project isn't to hope that I hope this could be every moment of every day for the rest of, you know, humanity. But for me, I think it's it's more like how do we just continually create as many more spaces of caring communities as we can and keep them alive as long as we can. And when they get torn apart for a variety of reasons, whether that's because someone dies or because our projects fall apart for different reasons as radicals or the Zapatista communities have been around for 30 years, but maybe someday they'll be broken. And how do we, during those moments, do the best we can to show there's beacons to come back to? And how do we, when they end, figure out ways to grieve them well so that we're stronger to go on to the next one? And so this book, again, is also, you'll see many stories will argue, in that bittersweetness, we're also in in the losses, in the grief. We're giving meaning to the care that we experienced and trying to bring it on to the next one, knowing that it's possible now. Um, and that, I guess, unfortunately, is, you know, in a world where there's never in human history been this stable, static moment where everything's been great. We're constantly in this struggle between freedom and unfreedom. And how do we accentuate freedoms and push away the unfreedoms? And that's an ongoing project of us continuing to practice care. <laughs> so, yeah, it will always be a mess, but we should continue to struggle. I think that's why I remain an anarchist is because anarchists is as messed up as we are too, like all human beings, because we're just human, is at least anarchists try again and again and again to tr create these communities of self-organization and mutuality and care and dignity in the same, and try to open up cracks like the Zapatistas were talking about at the beginning to show people that it's possible. Cindy, I really appreciate you being on the show. And when I was reading uh, the part about your anarchist glasses, I could not help but think of the classic Rowdy Rowdy Piper movie, They Live. <laughs> I love that movie. Have you seen the Have you seen They Live yet? No, I'll have to see. I'll uh, write that down. I'm <laughs> not kidding you. There's a wrestler, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, is in this movie They Live, where every time he puts on these glasses, he sees the truth about capitalism. Oh, I'll look. Okay. You <laughs> have to see this movie. Okay. Cindy, okay. thank you so much for being on our show this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking. I really appreciate talking to you. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>